Good morning, everyone. Glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, Before we get started, let's have a prayer. Our God, our blessed Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for today. Thank you, Lord God, for your love and your strength and protection over the night while we slept. Allowing us to rise today to be ready to come and serve you, Lord God. To be able to come and learn more about you through these Bible classes that we're having here in the auditorium and also in the other classrooms with the children, Lord, and also in our deaf community. We ask that you be with us as we study this morning and that you bless this congregation, that we may grow more, Lord God, spiritually. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we, we ended with um, a portion of chapter 17 in 1 Kings, where we talked about Elijah and how the ravens were feeding him um, to remove any possibility of any man revealing where Elijah was hidden, um, where God told him to go and hide. And the, the thought that we should have um, taken from the end of that lesson is that Elijah... Uh, must must rely on God at this point. He should be relying on him anyway, but he must rely on God and, and we must rely on God. Each doing uh, any time in our life, but also uh, in persecution. Also in uh, with when we have persecution. So now we're at uh, chapter 17 in 1 Kings. In verses 8 through 16, we see talk about uh, Elijah providing for the widow of Zarephath. God's command is to go and find the chosen widow in verses 8 through 9. And Zarephath is between Tyre and Sidon, and it is a Gentile town. It's not a Jewish town. I want you to notice over in Luke chapter 4, an example of this, of how God turns to Gentiles when his people are weak. Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 25. Luke 4, 25 says, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. Okay. They just adjusted the lights on me here. Could you, could you turn down just a little bit? Thank you. But I tell you truly, many widows, thank you, were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and three was a uh, excuse, me, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the regions of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So there are two examples right there um, with Elijah and Elisha, and how when God's people were not doing what they needed to do when they were weak, uh, God turns to the Gentiles. Back in 1 Kings 
uh, chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, we see Elijah's first test to see if this is the right woman. Because God tells him to go and seek the widow. And he he knows it's her because she says, she answers to him, the Lord, your God. She was genuine in faith. Her, her faith was genuine in God. And she passes the second test about the flour and the oil. And it didn't run out. I mean, wouldn't you love it if, I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about in the Old Testament about flour and oil. It's like, that's, it seems like that's all they ate. I know it was more than that. But could you imagine if your pantry never ran out? You would never have to go back to Fred Meyer or Walmart, Commissary or wherever you go to cars, Safeway. And it just doesn't run out. Um, God still provides a, provides for us in that way as well. Not necessarily through miracles where every time I open up the pantry, it's restocked. But God provides for us so that we can be able to assist here in life. Um, so let's go to verse 17 and chapter 17. So we see that Elijah has come to this town because God told him to go and seek out this widow. And he and the widow and the son, they ate. It never ran, it never ran out. And this woman who is a Gentile, she says that she talks about his God, but it's still, she's a Gentile and we don't still get the sense maybe that she believes, um, in God as, um, as the true God. But then when we start reading verse 17 in chapter 17, it says, now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what I have, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was stand and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times. And he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the widow said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. So, again, we see that his son is ill and he dies. The widow sees this immediately as punishment for her sin. Um, this is further proof she believes in God. So if we didn't think she believed in God, she did. But this is further proof that she did. And then we see this deep, sincere prayer from Elijah. It's a pointed, short prayer. You know, it's right to the point. Uh, our prayers don't have to be long to be effective. We don't have to have long, long prayers to be effective. There's nothing wrong with long prayers, but some pray very long prayers, and then we don't know what they prayed for. You know, 
we start praying and praying and praying and you get to the end of the prayer and, you, and you're ready to say amen but i don't i don't even remember what you were praying for and so one of the things that we do is we're training young men especially um, when they're praying uh not just at home but also in public we there's there's a reason why you're praying like when after after the sermon you may see you're going to see one of the elders come up and there are things that we're going to pray about we have a list of items that we're specifically going to pray for at that time but we will also pray for anyone that comes forward um and some other items that we're going to pray for at that time i'm not saying that you can't pray for anything else but sometimes um you have to know when it is appropriate to pray for what like I'm at a funeral. I shouldn't be praying for everything else and then forgetting the folks that are here at the funeral or praying for the family or something like that. But there's nothing wrong with long prayers. We just, what are we talking to God about? God knows everything. So get straight to the point. You don't have to beat around the bush with God. Now, for me, um, The prayer is then made into a very pointed short request. The idea of the statement is, can you truly not let this widow's son live? It's not that he's, at first when I was reading, I was like, why do these men keep talking to God in the way they keep talking? I can't talk to God that way. But let me not look at it in such a way to where he's um, saying in verse uh, 20. Oh, Lord, God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with with whom I lodged by killing her son? That's how you can read it. Or you can read it as, oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow to whom I whom I lodged by killing her son? He was what he was asking was, can you truly not let this widow's son live? He knows that God can and he's he's still questioning, as we will see. Elijah's still questioning. Like, I'm a man of God, but I, I, my faith, his faith is still a little wavering there. But God responds with grace. And the widow receives her son alive, and her faith is deepened. And again, we, we've already read this, but not just for knowing Elijah is the man of God, uh, but also from knowing that God's words are truth. That when this God speaks... That it, or his word, there is truth unlike the idols that maybe she and the other Gentiles were serving. She sees that God's word is truth. Elijah goes to meet Ahab in chapter 18. God tells Elijah to go to Ahab, and Ahab and his officer, Obadiah, who is a good man, uh, to search for food for their livestock. Look at verse 17, uh, verse 7 of chapter 18. Now, as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is. It is I. Go, tell your master, Elijah is here. So he said, How have I sinned that you are delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said, he is not here, he took an oath from the um, kingdom or nation they could not find you, that they could not find you. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. 
And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you to a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. He is, he will kill me. Then Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Uh, you can see Obadiah is a good man, but he's like, I don't want to die, not in this way. I know what my master um, has been looking for you. Ahab searched diligently for Elijah, as we read, but the Lord had hidden him very well. Again, we, if you remember from last week and from your own study and reading, the ravens came and fed uh, Elijah with, uh, with, with the meat, and, and he was drinking from the brook until it, it dried up. And that was so that no one could tell, uh, no man could tell where Elijah was hidden. Obadiah's true fear is the Holy Spirit. And it will remove Elijah. Uh, the Holy Spirit will remove Elijah and he will not be found again. This would have been treason in the eyes of Ahab and he would have Obadiah killed. Obadiah is a worshiper of Jehovah, not Baal, and had never worshipped the idol. And proof of this is in his hiding and feeding so many men of God at his own peril, those 150 in each cave. Elijah confirms to Obadiah he will be there when Ahab returns. And I want you to notice that Ahab comes to meet Elijah. He comes to Elijah and on Elijah's terms. All this time he's been looking for him. And yet Elijah is telling the king, this is what you will do. And so as a child and then also as an adult, I've always enjoyed chapter 18 verses 17 through 24. Because of the challenge that Elijah does, uh, gives to all those priests, the, uh, 450 priests of Baal and the 400, uh, prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of, uh, Asherah, Asherah. We see that in verses 17 through 20, he tells them to gather, um, his people, to gather the people. And notice Ahab become, blames Elijah for the famine. Look in verse 17. It says, Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Now, let's stop here. Let's, let's remember the things that Ahab has done up to this point. And how much he is, uh, as my, my younger two boys say, a crybaby and whiner and, and, and all the things that Haman did too when he was um, trying to kill Mordecai, just whining and, and crying and looking for someone to tell him it's all right. You go and do what you need to do, like like Jezebel did eventually. Well, when someone is is sinning in the congregation, one or two or three are influenced by them and their sin, and they go off doctrinally. Uh, there is the problem. And let me repeat that again and. In better terms, I guess we have if we have folks in the congregation as related to this, what we're reading that are 
doing things that are wrong and they have great influence, they can pull people away. And then you come about and like, hey, that's not that's not what scripture says. That's no, we, we can't do it that way. I'm the problem. That's what has been said. I'm the problem. But the problem is you're doing things doctrinally wrong. You're going way away from the Bible, and that is the problem. But then you have a righteous person, as I said, within the congregation, and, and tell those people they are not doing according to God's word. They say that that person is the problem. Things are going to go well, uh, and then here you come. Uh, causing problems, causing division. I'm causing problems. I'm causing division because I'm using the Bible and you're using, you know, something else that's not scriptural. We still must identify error and wrong teaching, wrong practices in our Christian walk. If I stand up here today and I I say, okay, well, the scripture says this, but I'm going to open up this other book and we're going to read from this. And now I'm telling you, this is what we should be doing. Somebody in here, if not all of y'all should be telling me you're wrong. You're not going to be teaching what's not God's word. Ahab was one that I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless of what God wants me to do. And I'm going to follow the Baals and I'm going to follow the um, Asherahs. There were 850 people right here that were ready to give their lives over to these inanimate objects. These these pieces of whatever wood and steel and iron and whatever material they made out of that could not do anything for them. And because of that, Israel was following them also. And they were leading them away from God. The real problem, the real trouble is the worshiping of false gods and Ahab is the blame. Elijah is not the blame. Uh, Ahab is. Ahab, Ahab, uh, excuse me, Elijah challenges uh, Ahab. He challenges the people. He asked them in verse 21, and we're talking about the Israelites now, or the, the people of uh, Israel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. They were trying to straddle the fence. We have that today. People want to have one hand in the world and, and one hand with pleasing God. You got to serve one or the other. I know who God wants you to serve, um, and we all know that. He doesn't want us to be serving the world, doesn't want us to be serving Satan. But when Elijah gives them that challenge, he says those things, the people are silent. They say nothing. So in Elijah, in verse 22, increases the challenge with and a, a very exaggerated statement, um, but still draws out the eyes clearly. And the reason why I say it's exaggerated if you look at verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, have, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. But we know he's not. He knows he's not. He's been told a couple of times already now that he's not. But uh, to make it, he, he's trying to make a point, I believe, to them. And he draws out the odds clearly. Notice Elijah gives the false prophets first choice and the first opportunity to prove whose God is God. In verses 18 through, uh, excuse me, 25 through 40, it is basically God or Jehovah against Baal, which is no match at all. They try for half a day, but there is no fire. They call down fire from, from heaven or wherever they thought it was going to come from, even after all of their frenzy. In verses 25 through 26. And then 
in verse 27, um, I still say that there is there's comedy sometimes in the Bible when I read it. At least as a child, I remember thinking, these people were crazy. And here is Elijah, knowing who truly is God, is picking at them. This is what I used to say. I still say it, too. He was, he was mocking him. He said, maybe their God is talking or, or, and, and also can't hear at the same time. Maybe he's talking and he just can't hear. Or maybe he's, the, the, the God is the, the bell or is preoccupied or, or, or going out, going to do something. And because he's preoccupied, he can't hear you talking. Maybe he's on a journey. I know one of, one of my Bible class teachers said, well, maybe he was on a vacation. You know, like we take vacation. Maybe he's out on vacation and because he's out on vacation, he can't, um, he can't be present because, you know, that God only can be present for that time. And, and before I go on, I want, I want us as we continue to go on in first Kings, second, second Kings and the Chronicles, you, you should notice that there is a God of wood. There is God of the floor. There's a God of the corn. There's a God of just this city. And our God is God of all. And that's the point that is, that is, we should take from here and that Elijah and Elisha and, and all the other prophets that we read about and, and then all of the warnings to all the kings, every single one of them, all 40 of them, was that I am God. I'm God of all. Why are you keep worshiping the God of the microphone? That's how ignorant and stupid it, it really sounds, right? It's like, why are you doing that? He, he also talks about, well, maybe that God is asleep. See, uh, our true God is spirit and his spirit never sleeps. God never sleeps. He never rests. Their frenzy now turns into bloodletting. In verse 28, I'm sure you've already read that they start cutting themselves and they prophesied. This is what they, the bell worshipers, called the groans and cries that came from bloodletting. Then in verses 30 through 38, we see Elijah's sacrifice. He repairs the altar. Uh, The origin of the altar that's here is is unknown, but there are 12 stones that we read about here that show all Israel was to share the same worship under the same rules. Elijah prepared the sacrifices the same way, but also added water three times. Uh, The sacrifice is accepted. And we know this because, well, in verse 36 and 37, Elijah first prays about it. In verse 36 in chapter 18, the scripture there says, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that the people may know that you are the Lord God. And that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the the wood and the stones and the dust. And I have never understood this part. But this is how powerful God is. And it lit up the water that was in the trench. Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The prophets 
uh, then are killed, all of them. Then the drought ends in verse 41 and through 46. There's the sound of abundance rain. Ahab is to wait while Elijah prays. The faith in Jehovah sees rain in a little cloud in verses 43 to 44. In such confidence, he even tells Ahab to hurry home or his chariot would get stuck in the mud. He sees a little small cloud. He knows it's God. And if, if the fire can lick up the water, a small cloud, which eventually turns big, but a small cloud from God can, you know, rain and rain and rain and flood if God allowed it to. But God was not going to allow it to flood like it did in Noah's time. Uh, Elijah is helped by God and he outruns Ahab uh, to Jezebel. Now, Ahab is in the chariot and Elijah is running and he outruns him. And then from where they were at to where Ahab was going was 16 miles. Elijah uh, and Ahab, excuse me, Ahab and Elijah until Ahab's death is found in chapters 19 through 22, which we will cover this morning. Ahab reports to Jezebel. Who is really in charge here? Is Ahab or is Jezebel in, tar- in charge? Jezebel, that's right. Jezebel is in charge. In verses 1 through 3, it says, In Ahab 19, chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message, messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, we can beat up on Elijah right here and say, Elijah, all the things that God has done for you all this time, he's fed you by ravens and let you drink from the brook and, and you didn't go for want and, 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 and didn't, look, look what I just did for you. Not just for you, but for Israel. Look, look what I just showed you, my power. And you scared of this woman? You're supposed to be a righteous man. You're supposed to be a man of God. Now raise your hand if you would have done anything differently. We get like that often. God will do amazing things for us through his um, providence. And then in the next moment, something stands in front of us that is like a wall. And it's just, I can't get through this. How am I going to get through it? We have forgotten already about God. We do that. And so we need to make sure that we, as we read and we go, oh, you crazy. You should have just remembered God. Because, we you know, we have the whole Bible right here, right? We can, we can see everything. We know exactly what's going to happen. We don't know that in our lives. But what we do know is that the God of the Bible, the God of Elijah, is the same God we have today. And that he can continue and he does continue to take care of us. So let's let's remember that. And when we forget, let's quickly repent, ask God for uh, for forgiveness and turn back to it to him. Because when we when we we forget about him, we essentially are leaving him to the side, putting him on the shelf and saying, I'll bring you back down when I need you. We always need God. We always need him. Jezebel is angered by the loss of her followers. So threatens Elijah's life. She uses an oath. Um, Elijah goes far, farther than Judah, where he would have been safe anyway. 
How bitter it must have been to have accomplished so great a victory for God and immediately be attacked by his greatest rival, Jezebel. This type of conflict gives weariness to the body as well to the soul. In verses 5 through 8, God prepares Elijah for a long journey to Horeb. In verse 5, it says, Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, Horeb, the mountain of God. Um, I've often thought about the food that God and Jesus has have provided for people. Uh, must have been really good. I just think about Jesus when he fed his disciples after he came back from um, the, uh, from death, and he was cooking the fish, and they ate it for breakfast. And here, God providing him. You know, the food here, I just, God is always taking care. And when it comes from him, I know it's just, it must be, um, it must have been wonderful. It must have tasted really good. That's in my mind. That's what I thought about when I read it. Um, so was this rest and food for a dying man? No. For a man who will wander 40 days in the wilderness and learn again to let God perform his will in his life. This happens to us. Sometimes, sometimes we go through a stretch in life, a, a rough patch. And we need we need reminders that God is in control, and you know, being being Christians doesn't mean that we won't go through hard times. In fact, I know we will. What's important is that we, and you're gonna hear me keep saying this, we we rely on God, and that's what. Elijah needed to do was rely on God. God provided for him, and in that strength, in that that food that He gave him, in those forty days, he needed and forty nights, he needed to rely on God. He needed to rely on God anyway. But this was to to teach him that. In verse nine, and there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Jehovah wants to hear what is the soul, what is in his soul after 40 days of fasting and wandering. Elijah is conv- convinced the cause as it stands now. He's lost. I, even I only, am left. He continues to think he's the only one. When the solitude, he sees a strong wind, or he hears a strong wind, a tempest, as some of your versions may say. There's an earthquake, then there's a fire, and God's not in any, any of those. And then he hears a still, small voice. These are great circumstances, and Elijah responds with great respect. A still, small voice. God came to him in mercy and not vengeance. You know, God always just wants us to turn back to him. God wants us to turn back to him. We sin, we we leave him, we stop loving him like we should. And yet God wants us to turn back to him. 
And so he gives us time and opportunity to turn back to him. If we wonder why in the world is the world continuing to keep going on with all the badness in it, God wants everyone to turn to him and turn back to him. God does not want any of us to perish. God loves it when those that are in Christ die in faith because they are coming home to him. But he never wants to see us die outside of faith because then we're outside. We're going to be outside of heaven. There's only one other place, right? Hell. And he doesn't want us to be there. There's going to come a time when God, and I don't know when that is, none of us do, when he's going to say enough is enough and I'm bringing, I'm, I'm putting an end to this. But God wants us all to turn back to him. Elijah answers the same as before, though, in verse 14. Well, let's look at verse 15 through 17. It says there, then the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphath of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the word of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Something that I wanted to mention here is that when we get low in our Christian walk, we need to get to work. Let's get to work. Nothing picks you up more when you're low spiritually and and doing things for the Lord, doing work for the Lord. Um, You know, if you're at work and you, you don't have enough work to do, your boss gives you more projects, right? And when you're at home, um, husbands, we get honey-do lists, right? You know, when you don't have enough to do or, or you just, when, when our kids, when our kids say, I'm bored, what do we do? We give them something to do, either more homework or more housework or something like that, and then they learn not to say that anymore. Well, in the church, we need to get to work. When we feel like, what am I doing? Get to work. Find something to do. There's always something to do. There's always more Bible to read. There's always more studying to do. There's always someone that needs an ear for you to uh, sit with them and just listen to them. There's always something to do. He tells them to anoint um, these these kings, one in Syria and one in uh, Israel. And then he tells them to anoint Elisha as prophet to take your place. Again, like I talked about last week, all these names almost sound the same. Elijah and Elisha. We're going to get to two kings that have the same exact name, uh, as I said last week, because they're brother-in-laws. God will work, God's work will go forward. It doesn't, if you don't do it, somebody else will, because God's work is going to go forward. Think about Esther. When Esther, we're, we're reading that now in the teen class, um, what Mordecai told her and basically said, well, if you don't do it, somebody else will. But here's your opportunity to serve the Lord. 
he doesn't use God's name. He doesn't say the Lord, but that's what he's getting at. Here's your opportunity to serve your people, to serve God's people. God will avenge God. You know, we get hurt sometimes when someone says God's name in vain, and we should be hurt. And, and it should upset us because someone is using God's name in vain. Someone's out doing things that are, are wrong scripturally um, that we see. We might see it on TV or we might we like, man, that's not what God wants. You know, God would avenge God. You keep doing you. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours. Uh, and now in verse 18, there's a lesson for Elijah. God is not without a faithful remnant. Seven thousand people. He's telling him, you're not alone. Guess what, y'all? We're not alone. We're going to see this again later on, but there's always a remnant. There's always someone or some people willing to serve God the right way. Let's be that remnant. I think about when Abraham was talking to um, the Lord and they were going to, the angels were going to go and, you know, take out Sodom, Gomorrah, and all those other cities. And, and Abraham, he gets down to 10 people. He said, what about 50? And he goes all the way down to 10. There weren't even 10 souls there. But there were at least, well, it started out as, as four. But there were at least three people that God waited on. He, it was four, but Lot's wife decided to turn around. Um there's always someone. You be that one person if it's only one person. Let us all be that one person and then, you know, we multiply. Let's always serve God. Let's be that remnant. Chapter 19, verse 19. As we come closely to a close here. Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them. And each one killed his man to the Syrians field. Uh, excuse me. Um, so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the uh, cavalry. Then the king, I think I'm reading the wrong verse here. I'm in chapter 20. Sorry about that. I was like, what? This doesn't sound like Elisha. Chapter 19, verse 19. I apologize. So the departed, so they departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shapheth. So he departed from there, who was applying with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelve. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment. And gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Elijah was, was wealthy, and he had those 12 oxen there. Um, to, to cast the mantle was to give him the call to be a prophet. That's the purpose of doing that. Elijah wishes to say goodbye to his parents, and Elijah says he does not want to be a burden to him, but wants him to come on his own free, of his own free will. So he gave a feast and left ten and twelve yoke of oxen for ten and twelve tribes of Israel. Uh, Ahab's first victory is found in chapter 20. There are 32 kings or 32 vassal kings under Ahab. The conditions of peace 
um, excuse me, there are two vessel kings that were not really kings. They, they fell upon one, one other person. In verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 10, we see there as a condition of peace and Ahab accepts. The conditions are literally unconditional surrender. This is not acceptable to Ahab or his counselors. Ben-Hadad's challenge was to destroy Samaria. Ben-Hadad accepts the counter-challenge. God is not through with Israel just yet. He will be, but he's not through them just yet. And he sends a prophet with news of victory. So Ahab asks, who will fight? God answers, the young men. Ahab asks, who will lead? God answers, you. He is the king, and he's asking these questions. Verse 15 tells us there are 7,000 to give victory, not the 7,000 of what we read in chapter 19, verse 18. Israel is victorious over a nation whose leaders are drunk. You need to go and read this yourself to get an understanding of what was going on. The prophet comes to Ahab um, that they will return next spring. And Ben-Hadad receives some advice, but it's not good advice. He says that God is the God of the hills only. He says Jehovah is a God of the hills only. And he says, replace the kings with generals and muster an identical army in, in numbers. See, when, you, when you're drunk, you, you can't think right. You don't do right. You, this made no sense. God is a God of the hills. Jerusalem is a hill fortress. That's why he's saying this. The temple is in Jerusalem, and the altars were numerous in high places. So that's what gave him that thought. Well, Ben-Hadad, um, in, in this, this is limiting God, and we shouldn't limit him. Ben-Hadad comes to fight, and Ahab's small force looks like two little flocks of sheep or goats beside a giant herd of cattle. God gives the victory to Ahab for two reasons. They say, I am God of the hills only, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So they're saying, I am the God of the hills, and I'm going to show you I am God. I am God. 10,000 people were slain, and God slays 27,000 more in verse 30. Verse 31 through the end of the chapter here, we see there's an unconditional surrender. There are ropes tied around their necks. Benadad um, calls him his brother, or he's called his brother. Now Ahab, you know, he kind of, he's indecisive. He wavers. He's a he's very weak person, uh, has a very weak personality. Benadad, Benadad should have killed, uh, should have been killed, or should be killed, because he opposed God. And to give God's people rest from his wars and a lesson to all the peoples. Now, when we don't, when we, we should see over, we'll see over and over again, have seen over and over again, that when God says, kill these people, take them all out. I'm, I'm telling you for a reason. You know, Haman wouldn't have existed if King Saul had done what God said to do. Uh, there was a treaty made. It was a forced one, however, in verse 33 to 34. It told them to return to the cities taken from Return the cities taken from Israel and make the streets on open markets in Damascus. Well, we won't have time to read verses 
35 through 43, I ask that you do if you haven't already. We'll see Jehovah's dis- disapproval and condemnation. Um, this is a, you know, there's a visual aid that's, that's given. It's still a fearful thing not to obey God. Still is. And not to use his word um, to combat all error. We, sometimes people try to use God's word in the wrong way. They try to say, well, it says this in the Bible, or they take it out of context. Let's make sure that we're taking it in context. Same thing when God is speaking to these people, they need to take it in context. context. Lastly, there's, there's obedience that we, we find in verse 37. And the object blessing cannot be misunderstood when applied to Ben-Hadad in verses 39 through 40. The message is lost, lost opportunities will bring punishment. The prophet reveals his true identity in verse 41 because he's disguised right now. And that man whom I appointed to other destruction, literally a man of Bane in verse 42, the penalty is that your life for Ben-Hadad's and your people for Ben-Hadad's. Because he was so displeased, he was talking about Ahab, he was, he was displeased because he hadn't done what God told him to do. And that's how we should feel when we haven't done what God told us to do. But Ahab just keeps doing it over and over and over and over again because he wants to do what he wants to do. He is very, he wavers a lot. And, well, we will see what happens to him next week in chapter uh, 21. We'll be reading verses chapter 21 through chapter, I want to say chapter 23. No, we won't. It won't be chapter 23. It'll be through the end of chapter 22. And we will talk about the murder murder and robbery of Naboth and lots of things that happened during this time of Ahab and Jezebel. That'll be lesson number seven. We are halfway through our course and uh, I'm enjoying this. And I hope that you you are getting some understanding out of this. Because as we move forward, is when we're starting into all the different kings and all the things that they did. And there's so much to derive from God's word here. Thank you all for attending. We are dismissed.